This week's TribCast is sponsored by the Texas Lyceum. Register today for the Texas Lyceum's public conference on healthcare, focusing on Medicaid, mental health, access, equity, and the uninsured. More info at texaslyceum.org. And the Witty Museum. Portraits of Courage is now open at the Witty Museum. Learn more at wittymuseum.org. Texas Talking Out. What was that that you said? Texas Talking Out. Gonna hoop upside your head. Texas Talking Out. Tell me who can you trust when Texas Hots are Hi, this is James Tallarico, former middle school teacher running for the Texas State House in District 52. When I tell folks I taught middle school, they usually comment on my bravery, and I usually tell them that teaching middle school is the best preparation for serving in the Texas legislature. And now, from someone who knows how to manage an unruly classroom to someone who knows how to manage an unruly podcast, your host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, July 25th with your Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by CEO Evan Smith. I was laughing here thinking that um, knowing what we're going to talk about today, that mold should be a sponsor of the Tribcast. Like the mold, is there a lobbyist for, on behalf of mold? Who the could mold have possibly industry spent money with us. Yeah, probably. This Tribcast brought to you by mold. Don't call our Tribcast moldy. Uh, political reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. Speaking of moldy. <laughs> and breaking news and civil courts reporter. <laughs> what does that even mean? That? <laughs> Emma Platoff, who's becoming a fixture. Hello. Hello. We'll be taking your questions via Facebook and Twitter. We're going to so need an additional table for all please. of Emma's reference material. Well, we actually, <laughs> I was asked to bring notes. We may need an additional table. So, Evan, uh, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, you had some really choice words for Wheatsville Co-op. I did. Uh, ill-advised, ill-informed words uh, do for we Wheatsville. Have, have, have they sued <laughs> us? Do I have to? Do, it do turns I have to, do, out do, that Wheatsville listens to the Tribcast. Oh, no. You, and you, just, you didn't warn me about I this? I didn't know. But Wheatsville today, in honor honor of you being on the Tribcast has brought us uh, two giant bags full of oh, Wheatsville lunch for the staff. Well, for Evan and the staff. See all this thing, this I, stuff I, here? I, 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 to, to describe myself as mortified would be the understatement <laughs> of we the year. So hold on. So if Not I start yet. talking badly about people on the Tribcast, they'll bring me things? What I mean, Ikea? I hate Chick-fil-A. I hate Chick-fil-A. I hate Fort Knox. This is uh, actually not sponsored. I hate Wilco. This is not sponsored content. This is just unsolicited. So, Evan, I think uh, on behalf of the staff, you owe Wheatsville a quick apology. Uh, let me do a spot for Wheatsville right now. Okay, here's my, and I want them to get your cameras ready. I want to tape this for, on behalf of the people at Wheatsville. Wheatsville Co-op. At least we're not sprouts. <laughs> All right, there you go. How's that? At least there's no mold. <laughs> Always gracious. It's a good transition. I'm not. I'm, yes. yes. Okay. Well, we're actually. That's very nice of the Wheatsville people. Thank you very much. I hope it's delicious. It will be delicious. Okay, it's fine. their um, popcorn tofu and a whole bunch of amazing donuts I and their you ginger limeade. It is. All, aren't you still vegan? <laughs> you said what popcorn happened? tofu, uh, and all of a sudden, I started to think I needed yeah. to run to the restroom. <laughs> Right. We'll give it a chance. All right. We'll give it a chance. Uh, yeah, you're, you're, the po- you're the popcorn tofu type, I, I can am. tell. Look, yeah. I was going to start with Emma talking about immigration, but <laughs> you should, let's, you should. let's right. talk yeah. about mold since we are already on the subject. So yeah. Marissa Evans on her staff wrote this really astonishing story late last week about, yeah. oh, the irony, state health buildings being overrun with mold on keyboards, on desks, right. on the carpet, even on like shoes that staffers would leave there overnight. With some truly disgusting pictures accompanying the story. Yeah, I know. I mean, this is an amazing example of like tipsters sending stuff in. Yeah. So what's the after? 
aftermath. Well, the aftermath is Marissa Evans gets results. Uh, you know, basically a day after the story, there was an announcement internally at the at the building affected by this to the employees affected by this that they were going to be moved out. Uh, the HHSE was going to deal with this. Um, State buildings with mold are not new. We've had conversations at various points uh, in the past about things like this. We have had infestations of uh, rats. rats and uh, also you know, in a state health. We, building. we published a story a couple of years ago about holes in walls mm-hmm. and you know just like all manner of disgusting stuff. Your tax dollars at work, right? Right. Um, you know the fact is we uh, have a lean state government. We have a lean state budget, relatively speaking. Um, we don't view the expenditure of money on overhead, which you would consider buildings and other facilities uh, to be to be a priority at a moment when we have pretty significant needs. Uh, for foster every care st- system. I mean, you can go down the list. Every right? dollar in the state budget is fought over. They're not uh, referendum dollars. They're choice dollars. Any dollar you spend on a building is a dollar that you don't spend on health care, education, whatever else. Stipulated. But you know what? State workers are public servants. They do the business of the public. And I understand, like, you know, first responders. We're very concerned about, and should be, do we spend enough to support first responders? There's always a lot of talk about first responders. First responders are public servants. They serve the public. That's fantastic. You know who else serves the public? People who analyze HIV data. People who work in state agencies are public servants. I don't think we would want to ask firefighters or EMS people or cops to work in buildings with mold and rats, mm-hmm. although maybe they do. They probably do. We certainly Given- don't want people who are analyzing important data that ultimately is of great significance to the state to be working under those conditions either. And so the state needs to get its act together. And it sounds like the state, at least immediately after Marissa's story, moved to deal with this issue. But we also know this is not the only issue. We have had a ton of, of I, I see oh, and the all of us see like the people who in. have sent in stuff after this first story about the terrible condition of state facilities. Uh, it's it's just alarming. It's disgusting. Is it is what disgusting. It is. We're getting, a, I mean, just a really revolting right. stuff. Sense. And look, you know, <laughs> Texas exceptionalism is a thing. We love to puff our chests out and talk about how much better we are than other states. The the On the coat of arms of Texas, as it were, it should say, Texas, we know better, right? <laughs> we love how we do things better than anybody else. This is nothing to be proud of. And this is nothing to think is exceptional if we're causing state workers to work uh, to work in this. Uh, here ends my moldy soapbox. Uh, <laughs> All right, but, I, but I do really think uh, it's extraordinary. And God, uh, thanks uh, to Marissa Evans for reporting on this stuff and, um, and to the people who are sending in notes about the, about the awful conditions. Especially that memorable video of a worm in the ladies' restroom. Oh yes, sure. whoever sent that, thank you. And it, it, Emma, Are you just jealous? to be clear, do you want one here? We can we can make that happen. Just here. to be That's clear, kind of you. A tipster sent in a picture. She said, "Look at this worm in the ladies' restroom." We of course sent it around to the whole staff because it was moving so fast, and everyone quickly responded, "That's a snake." <laughs> so actually, baby snakes in the women's restrooms of state office buildings, not worms. All right. Uh, unelected snakes. <laughs> right. As opposed to the normal snakes. Right. Right. All right, Emma. Uh, a federal judge has ordered immigration officials to reunite all migrant children under age five with their parents by Thursday. You have reported that that is basically impossible and unlikely to happen. Why is that? So just this morning, DHA Secretary Kirsten Nielsen told members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus that they're going to meet that deadline for kids age five to 17. Uh, What I imagine is going to happen is what happened last time, where they said, we're done. We reunited all eligible children and declared half of the children that they were supposed to reunite by a court deadline ineligible for various reasons. Can you define eligible? Right. What is, well, or maybe define ineligible. So 
To be eligible, you have to be the child's parent. So they check their DNA tests, they check documents like birth certificates, you have to not have a prohibitive criminal history. And the biggest problem for some of these parents is you have to be locatable, right? Some of the parents who are ineligible are ineligible because the U.S. government has already deported them and doesn't know where they are. Some of them are ineligible because the U.S. government has released them from immigration custody and doesn't know where they are within the United States. And that's some 600 parents in that group. I mean, to me, that that part is just like unfathomable to me. So how how was there not better record keeping, you know, to, to have deported parents and not be able to track them down or to have released them into the U.S. and not be able to track them down? Like what you were talking about, sort of coding errors. Yeah, there's a group the government said in a new court filing Monday evening, there's 463 adults who are not in the United States. A judge asked a DOJ lawyer yesterday, why are they not in the United States? Did you deport them? Did they leave? And apparently they can't understand the way these parents were coded in their own system. So they don't know whether they deported these Mm -hmm. parents, making it obviously difficult to reunify them with their children in the next 24 hours. So we have a lot of questions about this coming in on social media. Jennifer asks, so what happens to the kids whose parents are no longer in the country? There are indications that some kids have been released to other sponsors in the United States. That could be a relative who's already living here. Uh, For a lot of kids, it probably means that they're going to keep staying in these federally contracted shelters like Southwest Key, which is uh, housing several hundred migrant children in a renovated Walmart in Brownsville, Texas. And is several hundred the grand total? Like, how many kids are we talking about, basically, who, who may not be reunited? Well, as of yesterday, just over 1,000 reunifications have taken place. That's of 2,500 some kids in that older age group, the Mm -hmm. 5 to 17s. There are also about 40 tender age kids, so that's kids under 5 who weren't reunified by the deadline about two weeks ago. Emma, how do we know that we can trust the numbers that we're being given? I don't want to turn into Alex Jones or something here. No, please don't turn into Alex Jones. But, you know, we were told what the number of deaths were after the hurricane and Puerto Rico, and then we got data that suggested that they had undercounted the deaths by some magnitude of, you know, a hundred times or a thousand times. Is it possible that there are more kids in the system and more families separated than we actually know, that the data is not the accurate data? It is possible, and lawyers and advocates on the ground who've been there over the last several weeks have been raising concerns and questions about all this government data. For example, um, the Texas Civil Rights Project here is alleging that at least one family was separated long after the government was blocked from separating families, and long after President Trump said he would not separate any more families. So I think there are legitimate questions. That said, this is kind of our best source for these numbers, at least at this point in time. Is another question on uh, social media. So what happens to the federal government if they don't make the deadline? Like, are there any repercussions? So lawyers like to say the federal courts don't have a standing army. Mm -hmm. There's nothing immediately that happens. Just this morning, uh, Joaquin Casho, a congressman here in Texas, said the federal court should appoint a special master to kind of make sure the government is meeting these deadlines. That hasn't happened yet. Remains to be seen. I I think really the biggest pressure here is public opinion. Obviously, this is a story that's really uh, capturing the hearts and minds of Americans and they're calling their reps. And and I think that's really what keeps the government accountable. Patrick and Evan, uh, Isaiah is asking on social media, how will the border crisis affect Texas Republican candidates and Republicans in general heading into the November election? You take that first. I got the thought. Well, it's... um not to be too cynical, but it's already as a political issue. Oh, be cynical. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, buddy. <laughs> to be cynical, it's already as a political issue kind of faded. I mean, there was, when this initially became a huge national story, there were solutions being proposed in Congress by both Democrats and Republicans to address it. 
obviously some some people were more uh, proactive in addressing it or proposing solutions to it than others. Um, but now it's basically it's faded away from the radar in Congress. I mean, I think the other day John Cornyn was quoted as saying he doesn't see there being a compromise on uh, on a solution, and that you know a, a legislative uh, way to address this is basically dead. And um, you know we've seen the national political conversation completely overtaken in the past several days by the president's press conference in Russia. Uh, by Brett, Ka- Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh, Michael Cohen. I mean, it's just it's just the, the news cycle we live in now. And it's unfortunate because it's obviously an important story, but it seems like politically the conversation has, has already moved on. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, there are, there are, you know, you mentioned Joaquin Castro. You think about people like Beto O'Rourke. It's not to say that there aren't elected officials in Texas who are still following this very closely, but just in terms of the political conversation, um, Unfortunately, I think it's already in the rearview mirror. You know, if Michael Cohen and Demi Lovato, let's wish her well, were to travel to the border to see these kids, maybe the, pay attention to this maybe the media would be paying attention again, right? The fact is, nothing matters. <laughs> to be clear, we don't cover Demi Lovato. I don't think you, she's, you don't she's, cover Demi Lovato. <laughs> she, not it, consistent. It, no. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously. She's in a condition to travel right now. I, all right, all right. I realize it was like walking on the edge of being an inappropriate line, Sweet Tech. Thank right. you very much. any other celebrity. Yeah. No, but I chose somebody who's specifically in the news who's not right. in our lane. Right. Got it. Right? Can I continue? <laughs> nothing, sure. nothing matters. Please Is do. the point. Nothing matters. Well, meanwhile. It, 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 there's no, but there can be no political right. effect of this unless... People not in office and not in power press it to the point that they activate voters. There are a lot of steps on that path that have to that have to you know have to go yes this 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 this. Nothing matters. Well, and you, when you press it the way the reporters are pressing it, you continue to find you know these horrific circumstances, these horrific conditions. I mean, Emma, I think you went through something like a thousand pages of court declarations that describe you know long waits for medical care, outbreaks of chickenpox, um, you know, mothers saying I'm worried because I'm not you know eating enough to make enough milk to feed my baby. What? Why are you looking like that? I'm just laughing at something. Oh, all right. He's laughing at his phone, by the way, which he still well, it's has. Relevant. It's on related the table. to the Demi Lovato conversation. I'm not. Yes, say not. That. He's not <laughs> laughing about nursing mothers not being able to feed their babies. No, it's terrible. Uh, Emma, I mean, what are what are you learning in those records? First, I think it's it's important to say where these are coming from. So there's a decades-long federal court battle over the conditions that kids can be held in, both at Border Patrol processing facilities and then later in longer-term shelters where they're held. Um, as part of that lawsuit, lawyers collected something like a thousand pages of accounts from more than 200 kids and adults in facilities like these. And I'm planning to read some if that's still. Go for it. Here is uh, a 10 year old from Honduras who was taken from her mother. This was an account taken in July. I didn't cry the first day when I was at this facility, but I began crying all the time on the second and third day because I missed my mother. The majority of the other girls in my cell were also crying the whole time I was there. The lights were always on. There were no windows, and I didn't know whether it was day or not. I asked what time it was, and the officer said he was not permitted to tell me what time it was. Oh, my God. They just kind of go on and on. You mentioned some of the um, the dark spots, I guess. Rotten sandwich meat, water that tastes like chlorine, tearful family separations. Being basically forced to eat, like, raw ramen noodles. Yeah, ramen noodles that Seriously. were undercooked, so the noodles were hard. That was a. I was shocked by how common that complaint was, actually, and frozen bean burritos. Hmm, delicious. 
Uh, meanwhile, there are families that appear to be in limbo, parents who've been moved to this Port Isabel Center, where, which is generally a last stop before reunification, but they aren't being let go, yet they aren't being given the same rights as other detained immigrants. It seems, again, like there's just more bureaucratic confusion. There was uh, a woman detained in one of these facilities who told some of our colleagues she wasn't being given towels because of, you know, she was coded in the system as cleared to reunify with her child, but she hadn't been yet. So she was kind of in limbo at this facility being denied these sort of basic things. Again, I think this just points to sort of a lack of planning and a lack of a good infrastructure for reuniting these families. Right. And when we talk about like screwed up coding, well, you know, what we were hearing is that basically the, the color shirt you're wearing basically determines whether you get to, you're about to be let go. You know, folks who are like wearing their day clothes with a white, you know, like shirt, uh, issued shirt over it generally believe they're closest to being released. I mean, it's just crazy. So. Uh, all right. Well, just a reminder, you can shoot questions our way on social media and we'll try to mix them in here. Uh, before our next topic, I just want to thank another Tribcast sponsor, Green Mountain Energy. Green Mountain Energy, power your adventures, power your home. Tap into nature with 100% clean electricity with Green Mountain Energy. You know, I think if we talked badly about them, we would all get free energy. <laughs> Learn more at <laughs> greenmountainenergy.com. Uh, all right. So time for whatever uh, debate updates you can give us, Patrick. Uh, who's debating whom and when, starting with uh, your Dan Patrick news? This will be a short conversation. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dan Patrick's campaign uh, said in a, a statement uh, earlier this week that they have uh, no plans uh, to debate their Democratic uh, opponent, Mike Collier, which is a bit of a different approach than we've seen from some other statewide campaigns that have at least engaged in a little bit of a back and forth <laughs> right. with their opponents. And his, at least the quote was, you know. is amazing. It's a, they said his it's because his opponent shows, quote, no sign of grasping even the most basic rudiments of state government. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it just shows, and we've seen, you know, we're beginning to see even more resistance from other Republicans, statewide incumbents, to debating uh, their opponents. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I think it shows that these Republicans, statewide uh, officials, are feeling pretty good about where they're at for November, that they don't even feel the need to, um, you know, give off the perception that they're open to discussing debates, even on their own terms. Let's play both sides of this. And why so would they? If you're if you're a Democrat, you think... We like the free market in this country when it comes to soda. We just don't like it when it comes to politics. We don't want to put two brands side by side and tell people choose. And there's something really antithetical to the system that we live in that voters are denied the opportunity to brand test or to taste test. You know, I think candidates should have to debate. I think it's better when candidates debate. If your ideas are better, if you're awesome, that will be clear if you stand next to the person running against you or people running against you. That's the argument from the challengers. The argument from the incumbents is, why in the hell would I debate this guy? All I'm doing is elevating him. I'm putting him on stage next to me, and that elevates him. And giving me a chance to make an unforced error. Why would I if I'm that far ahead? Van Depute and Patrick in the 2014 lieutenant governor's race, you may remember, debated one time. We put the debate on. Ross moderated it at KLRU. It was a debate. The lieutenant governor's office is arguably the most important statewide elected office in the entire state of Texas. It is the most powerful office, more powerful than governor. The idea that we're not going to have a debate for the most powerful office in the state is kind of amazing. I'd love to go back and see if in previous iterations of these elections, if we did not have a debate, at least one for lieutenant governor. Do you, do you guys, while we're on this topic, do you guys remember in recent history in Texas politics a debate between a Republican and a Democrat that mattered? Hmm. That I mean, that mattered, well, that mattered like well, made a difference. Mattered. That had any, any moment in, in the debate or any outcome from the debate that changed the trajectory of the race. Well, Ann Richards mm -hmm. and Clady Williams 
debated quite a lot in 1990, and of course sure. there was that famous Crime Commission debate at the Anatole. Well, how old were you in 1990? Yeah. <laughs> negative two years, I think. Recent history, I All think, right, wait was a minute. the ass. I have to run no, to the bathroom well, again. I think about, for example, there, Check was, on the there, worm. Was, there was a considerable amount of hype surrounding the debate in the Democratic runoff for governor, and that debate ended up oh, who mattering. Hyped, who hyped that? Mrs. White? Right. Who hyped that debate? <laughs> well, there was a whole there was a whole buildup to it with Andrew White pushing for a debate. Lupe Valdez finally agreeing to it after stumbling in, in her campaign. And the debate ended up, I think, for most I observers. I think Romer got more votes right. after that debate. <laughs> exactly. There are only two debates in my mind that, that, you know, in my history of covering Texas politics that I don't like mattered is even too much too big of a word, but it was you know the Rick Perry oops debate, which was all Republicans anyway. That's presidential. That was presidential, and then there was the gubernatorial debate that had like 15 candidates on stage, including Kinky Friedman, <laughs> where they asked Kinky Friedman about his you know use of the N word, and and Perry slammed him and said you know Mr. Friedman, words matter. Yeah, I, I will say those the, are the only two. Like, that's it, really seriously. Can, seriously, can you think of any more? You're the memorable? grown up at this podcast, and that's all you can come up with is two. What, what can you come up with? The, the, I can come up with yeah. Ann Richards and Clady well, Williams. I was not even in Texas but then, that, and that was when Democrats were winning like statewide office in Texas, right? I, it, the state hasn't had a Democrat in statewide office for more than right. two decades. So I think Patrick's point stands. Do these debates ultimately sway any voters? Well, that's but, not to say there's no importance to them. Something that I remember, and just I've been in my four years here, is in the Greg Abbott. Wendy Davis debate in the Valley, Abbott was finally pushed to the point where he said he would not veto a repeal of the, the Texas Dream Act if it got to his desk as governor. And that only happened, you think, because he was pushed in a debate. Yeah, of course, exactly. it was a debate I mean, in I the Valley on a Friday night during high school football sure, I, season. I'm not saying it was Five a, nerds watched it. I'm not saying it's a game-changing moment, Apparently but I'm just you saying were that's one the only thing that I recall recently where, you know, there was a policy breakthrough, perhaps, or process breakthrough. Uh, candidly, I'd rather put any of these people on stage being interviewed by Evan Smith than I would. Oh, pl oh please. I'm serious. Like, you know. Oh God, you that, already have the job. Stop. Uh, <laughs> uh, Tyler Norris, who. Oh, God. Uh, uh, Another asks, county heard from. And it's, does, a and it's a county in East Texas asks, with no does, Democrats. Does Collier have a responsibility to have a viable campaign before demanding Well, debates? define viable campaign. What does that mean? Well, half of campaigns in Texas aren't viable. I know. Look, the fact is, Democrats are running for statewide office in an incredibly weak position. Guess what? I knew before you did. These are the major parties running for significant state offices. And honestly, who knew that Joe Barton was going to sext? I mean, the fact is, these things, these races play out in ways that you didn't know. Never say that word on this podcast again. Joe Barton? Yes. <laughs> I don't think I will probably again. No, the point is you don't know what these races are going to become until right. the events arise. And the fact is we don't know what's going to happen at any point in these races. Now, if I'm a Republican statewide office holder, I am not – to your point about thinking I got this – I'm probably not worried. So is Ken Paxton sure. going to debate Justin Nelson? What that's, would you say? That's a good question. We wrote about this today in, in a story for the site. Um, you take a step back and you look at this interview, actually, that Ken Paxton did back in November on C-SPAN. It was a very lengthy, substantive interview. And at the end, he was asked about his reelection campaign, obviously, much earlier in the cycle. Uh, I don't think Justin Nelson had announced by then. Ken Paxton didn't know what kind of opposition he was going to face. But he said, look, you know, I welcome all challengers. And he said something like, I'll debate anyone, anywhere, anytime on the issues. And I look forward to it. And as part of this story, we talked to Paxton uh, for an interview, and I asked him, you know, look, you know, will you debate Justin Nelson, your Democratic opponent now? And he said that's, you know, he 
was non-committal. He said that's an issue that we're you know we're going to address down the I'll road. I bet you lunch at Planet honestly, Sub that he's not going to debate by the Alan Blakemore standard closed. is actually pretty encouraging probably to, to Justin him. Nelson. It wasn't a, <laughs> you know a hard no right. right off the bat. So these guys are not going to debate. No. They're not going to debate. I don't think any of them are going to debate. But I am curious about this particular race. I mean, of all the statewides in your mind, is this one the most competitive, this race? The attorney general race? Yes. Um, I wouldn't say that. But I think it's definitely, I mean, look, I mean, just you have an indicted attorney general. Uh, It's not just any statewide official. You have an attorney general, state's top lawyer, et cetera, et cetera, who's indicted. I mean, optically, it's it's very, uh, you know, it's very bad. Emma, if you're Ken Paxton, would you debate? (laughs) I think I would take the Sid Miller line. A spokesman for Texas's uh, colorful ag commissioner said he would not debate his opponent because it would be free publicity for her. <laughs> well, that's the point. But right. that's actually that's which that's, is right, which is funny. Right? But it's it kind of makes the point. You put he's Mike Collier busy, on stage. He's too busy posting fake news on Facebook. On. You 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 put Sid Miller. I mean, pardon me. You put Mike Collier. Mike Collier's gonna love being mistaken for Sid Miller in it. Um, <laughs> you put Mike Collier on stage with Dan Patrick. You elevate Mike Collier. Of course. If you're Dan Patrick, what you're doing is giving yeah. him airtime. Sid Miller is not wrong about that. Yeah, but going back to the AG's race, yes. <laughs> <laughs> which I'm curious about and have asked you about. Yeah, and, and you have a democratic you have a democratic challenger who's you know a central issue uh, you know to his campaign is this indictment. He's talking about the race being one of uh, integrity versus indictment. Uh, he's a you know has a impressive resume, well credentialed lawyer from Austin and Houston. Um, he's taught at UT Law. Texas super lawyer, uh, former clerk to Sandra Day O'Connor. And in terms of fundraising, he's been doing better than most um, other Democratic statewide candidates beside Beto O'Rourke, who's kind of in a category of his own. Ken Paxton still has huge fundraising advantage. But, he, you know, like I said in the story, Democrats have, you know, ample reason to be optimistic about this. I mean, again, the, you know, the incumbent is, is under indictment. Um, and the interesting wrinkle to this is that not the, you know, sound too sympathetic to Paxton, but there is a gag order in, in, there's been a long running gag order in this securities fraud case that he's involved in. All sides aren't allowed to publicly talk about it. And so Ken Paxton running for reelection without the ability to really talk publicly about what is essentially the central issue in the election. And so uh, we talk, you know, he's, he's leaning a lot on his record and all these high profile kind of conservative priority cases that he's been involved in. He was, you know, the first attorney general in the country to file an amicus brief in support of the the, the uh, travel ban. Um, and so that's what he, I think, would rather focus on. Um, and that's what he is really able to focus on, again, citing that, that gag order. In which statewide races did our polling find the narrowest margins? Given that one? That one. So- yeah, but there were like a third of the voters were undecided, right? Yeah, 26% undecided with a one-point margin between Paxton and Nelson. It's, it's pretty early. Those polls are registered voters and not likely voters because she has notes. She prepares don't for the trip cast. Honestly, you <laughs> notice Vitek was able to do Justin Nelson's entire bio without notes. He wrote the damn story. <laughs> Still pretty good. Yeah. He, only, right. went, he yeah. only went to Northwestern. Well, that's all the time we have. We have a lot of Wheatsville co-op food to eat here. If you like listening to the TripCast every week, we hope you'll try our audio news brief, which shows up every morning on your Amazon Alexa smart speaker or podcast player. And thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music and to the Texas Lyceum, the Witty Museum, and Green Mountain Energy, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Evan, Emma, Patrick, and our producers, Todd, Bobby, and Michael Ray, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking about Texas talking, baby. Texas talking about Texas talking.
the good news is it's free food. Uh, the bad news is. My Lord, I won't be able to get this to you until I. Popcorn tofu. I have to go to the bathroom.